0: So before I proceed any further, I feel like I need to address the elephants in the room, or at least one elephant. Within the scope of 80s and 90s electronic and industrial music, there are a few bands that ended up transcending that genre. They crossed over, they got huge, they became household names. And back in the day, your parents might have even heard of them, if not actually been able to hum their big hit. Uh, There are two or three of these bands in my list of prospective things to discuss here. And it's about time I drag one of them out. It's Depeche Mode. In particular, their 1998 double live album, 101, which was my introduction to the band. But first, some business uh, to quote the immortal Lemmy Kilmister at a conference where he was to discuss the future of music. What am I doing here? And what am I doing here with this podcast? Um, It's been asked. I'm not sure I know the answer. I think what I'm doing is partially therapy. No one I know really wants to hear me lecture them about all the bands I love. And, you know, I have all this knowledge that's stored away from Many, many decades here now of of all the music I've listened to over the years. And my friends are largely familiar with this stuff already. And, you know, to be fair, my family probably just isn't that interested. Uh, But putting this stuff out there on the internet and talking about it lets me get it all off my chest in a fairly safe way, you know, just me hollering into the void, you know, like John and Yoko doing scream therapy. On the other hand, I'm approaching each episode here as if I'm explaining the album to someone who has a mild interest, you know, I'm making an argument for the album, why I like it, giving some context or stories, and hoping I can communicate what I see in it, Um, you know, and I realize that every generation likes their own music, and I'm not trying to convince anyone to like mine, you know, who's who's not in my generation, but I guess in my head I'm imagining I'm speaking to a kid here. Uh, But I I think I throw enough into this that even an older fan like me from, you know, from back in the day might pick up a few interesting bits they didn't know about before. Um, It is funny, but I like listening to internet randos talk about music I love. And it almost doesn't matter what they say about it. I find it weird just to hear another human being talking about something uh, that I know about. That's pretty niche, you know, something that's p- pretty personal to me that I don't normally talk about. Uh, you know, like something like your favorite albums. You know, it's weird just to hear someone else actually pronounce the song titles and the musicians' names. And it occurs to me that hey, I never really figured out how to pronounce that. <laughs> but it's been a part of my life for 40 years. Why why is that? You know, and just hearing someone else's thoughts on the album and not reading about it on Wikipedia or some blog or something. You know, there's something more interesting to me to actually hear it. It's like having a discussion with a friend. You know, I follow a few of these folks on YouTube and on podcasts, and I guess they gave me an incentive to just do something similar, you know, Uh, just to keep that conversation going. And who knows, maybe this show will inspire you to do the same. Lord knows if I can do it, anyone can do it. Okay, that should be all the encouragement you need. I'm all for more focused niche content on YouTube. In my opinion, it's been overrun by so-called influencers who are all about ad revenue and making a buck and eyeballs. That's all they care about. They all have some kind of, Catch, you know, they're spending their advertising millions on stunts that yield even more advertising millions. You know, Um, who knew you could make a living doing that? Just empty, vacuous content. And few seem to be talking about anything personal, uh, expressing something about their life or their experience, Uh, even something as low stakes as expressing an opinion on a 40 year old album. So all the thumbnails that are coming to me over YouTube through the stupid algorithm are just full of big, bright clickbait letters, like, you'll never believe what happens, and caught by the cops while bungee jumping off a Walmart, and here's some crap I bought or some stuff I ate for dinner. Um, The music commentary that I see, you know, that's just sort of dredged up is pretty much limited to either old interviews or you know that were just ripped off vhs tapes or videos of people reacting to songs i don't get that at all who the hell cares to see someone reacting to a song like uh, why is that interesting to anybody i have no idea um and how those kind of videos like aren't copyright violations as anyone's guess and i know people are making original content that doesn't have copyright violations that are getting taken down for copyright violations. So YouTube get a grip, okay? Um and it's time that we the people take YouTube back as a platform because it's really it's really become the cable TV of the internet. It's just a just a desolation, you know, a thousand channels of nothing. And at least, you know, I guess we are paying for it through ISP fees and whatnot, but I encourage you all to fight back, start your own channel, talk about something in your life that means something to you. And Lemmy, that's what we're doing here. So that's the end of my rant. So let's go back to the elephant in the room here, one of them, Depeche Mode. Uh, When did I first hear Depeche Mode? So once again, we're gonna step into the Wayback Machine, this time we're gonna set it to 1990. And it may be hard to believe it now and kids don't know who they are, but in 1990, Depeche Mode were about to become the biggest band in the world or or one of the top three biggest bands in the world. And they blew up beyond all expectations with their album Violator. Uh, Even my parents could hum Enjoy the Silence and weren't wholly unfamiliar with it. And I distinctly remember hearing that song played over the PA, at a local smallish amusement park and thinking, ah, yes, they've arrived. Depeche Mode have arrived. Uh, But once again, and maybe for the last time, I heard them through my sister's fabled college boyfriend, the one with the extensive record collection. Uh, And I'm not going to talk about him anymore because who cares, right? Uh, But I I made a crappy copy of Violator at the time on another cheap cassette tape, but I didn't really get into it. A few months after that, I was hanging out with a different friend. And I talked about this guy briefly in the Nights Are Ab episode. Uh, he was from the big city and therefore more sophisticated than the rest of us podunks. He moved to our much smaller town. I think it was in our senior year. So I'm talking about my senior year in high school here, probably. Uh, we became friends because I think we had some classes together and we we started studying and doing homework and such. And if I were being honest, I think he just wanted some help with his homework. He wasn't really the, as it turned out, um, you know, much of a student, but anyway, he was a big music fan and he encouraged me, you know, to listen to a bunch of bands and that I never heard of at the time. And some were good and some were less so. So Motorhead, good. Uh, Ray Lynch, who was this new age dude. I mean, arguably not so good. Uh, Depeche Mode. Good. Okay. Nights are Reb. Good. Um, except this friend of mine didn't have Violator. Um, he had a double live album called 101. And that's it here. And it turns out that 101 was also a video and he had it on a VHS tape and of course we watched it a bunch of times and he was explaining explaining the concept of the band to me and everything. Uh, the video was odd in that it's less of a concert and it's more of a documentary of the band touring the U.S. for their album Music for the Masses, which came out in 1987. It's a weird documentary though because it wasn't focused strictly on the band about half of it focused on a group of these youngish fans who were following the band on tour, and it all led up to this big concert at the Pasadena Rose Bowl in California, and that's the show that's here on this double live album. So this friend of mine saw Depeche Mode's Violator show in the big city, and Nights Are Ab opened for them, and he was the one who was telling me all about that performance, and, you know, of course we watched 101, and... He got me into them, so my first deep listen to Depeche Mode ended up being 101 and not Violator, even though I'm pretty sure Violator came out right, pardon me, right around that time. So actually, I'm lying. If I'm being totally honest, I had heard Depeche Mode prior to that I because I was familiar with their song People Are People, which came out in 1984 on their album Some Great Reward. Uh, I didn't love that song. I never bought it when it came out. I'm not even sure I knew which band sang it. I was pretty young at the time, but I definitely heard it enough on the radio that I at least recognized the song, and I could probably hum it back in the day. It was about that familiar to me. So when I got my hands on 101 and you know, I, I saw People Are People on the set list here, I thought, ah, oh, yeah, okay, it's those guys. I get it. Um, I want, and, and what did I know about Depeche Mode at the time? Well, I wasn't on the internet in 1990. So again, all I got of them was what I got from my friend and from watching 101. And what I picked up on was this, that there were four dudes in the band. Uh, Dave Gon was the lead singer and he was the one who wore white in the shows and he had a deep voice. And at the end of every song, he was sure to yell, thank you. Uh, that was uh, something that my friend called out for sure um, and just thought was really polite of of Dave to do that. Uh, Martin L. Gore was the songwriter. He was this smallish, quiet dude who sang all the the cool ballads that made the ladies weak in the knees and, and the guys too. Uh, for some reason, he wore a lot of leather and dresses in the shows. Then there was Andy Fletcher, who was another guy in the band who liked to clap a lot. And then there was Alan Wilder, who was the fourth guy. He seemed to be the technology whiz, uh, as evidenced by a segment in the 101 video where he explains the functions of their keyboards and how they play the music live. So in the show, it was immediately clear watching 101 that they were mostly playing to a backing tape. And, you know, per Alan Wilder later, about half the music was on the tape, including all the drums. And at the time, among my friends, that just, <laughs> that just seemed scandalous. Like, there was a lot of, dude, they have no drummer. And it just blew our minds, right? We we were pretty sheltered in my little town. We weren't in the big city. We were, you know, quite a ways away from the big city. And all we knew was rock and roll, And when you had rock and roll, you had a damn drummer in the back, you know, flailing away. We had all grown up with the Muppet Show, and everyone loved Animal the best, so therefore your band had to have a live drummer, just like Animal, right? It just only made sense. That's practically what rock and roll was. So if we had only realized then how many 80s bands either used drum machines or (gasps) had a live drummer who actually didn't play on the albums, <coughs> Def Leppard, um, yeah, it would have been pretty shocking. So anyway, mostly when they were on stage for this show, they were singing and playing keyboards. And as I said, Alan demonstrated their sampling keyboards could play back any sound. And the band took full advantage of that. So they built their songs around this time out of seemingly random sounds. You know, they'd get to the studio And they would immediately ask where the kitchen was because (laughs) they went and raided the kitchen to bang on pots and pans. And that's actually how they came up with the rhythm track for People Are People. Uh, They weren't using preset sounds at all. Um, And neither were they really using synthesizers. So kids, technically, a synthesizer isn't just any old thing that looks like a keyboard that you plug into the wall a synthesizer is a specific device that uses some kind of synthesis engine to produce a wide range of sounds and that engine could be based on frequency modulation uh, or subtractive or granular synthesis or wavetables There are all different kinds and some synthesizers use more than one um, a sampler is not a synthesizer It's just a glorified tape recorder, if you know what I mean. Some of you might remember tape recorders. But basically, you record a sound, and you play it back with the keys. There's no synthesis going on there. Um, Depeche Mode, at least at this stage in their career in 1988, were using samplers on stage, not synthesizers. They did use synthesizers earlier in their career, for sure. and, they, and I think, I'm sure they used synthesizers to some extent to record the albums in the studio. But at least as far as playing it back at a show, they sampled everything. Um, so every now and then, also, I should state that Martin El Martin Gore would pick up a guitar. But he wasn't doing flashy leads. Uh, they didn't really write songs with killer guitar solos in the middle. That wasn't the point at all. What he was almost always doing was just adding texture to the song that wasn't hugely obvious, you know, and a guitar gives you a certain kind of texture. It's a string that you're plucking or strumming and it makes a particular noise that doesn't sound like pots and pans being thrown down the stairs like the rest of their samples were for the most part. Uh, So to me, this whole approach to making music that I saw them taking uh, was New and interesting, for sure. And none of that would have come through or been obvious to me if we hadn't watched the 101 video to actually see how they were playing these songs live. Um, That was fascinating to me as a kid who was interested in technology and computers to see that, you know, you could make the music I love, the style of music I love by using technology and computers and to see how some professionals did that. That was a big deal. Uh, But like I said, uh, between 101 and uh, a huge push from radio pluggers at the time, they would soon rocket Depeche Mode into the stratosphere, in the U.S. at least, Um, and the funny thing is that at the time of this show, uh, the Rose Bowl show in Pasadena, the band thought, that this would be the apex of their career. And it definitely was a huge show. And it was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, they played at the time. And I think they talk about that in the video a bit. But little did they know what was going to be in store. That was just the beginning in some ways. So let's talk a little more um, about the album here. Um, As I said, I I originally copied my friend's 101 CDs to cassette tape, because that's what we did in the early 90s. Um, The funny thing is that it didn't quite fit on a 90-minute tape. So let me explain. A 90-minute tape had 45 minutes on each side. So in this case, disc A fit all right, I guess, on side A, but disc B cut side B off halfway through the second to the last song, which was just can't get enough, which was perfectly fine since I could easily get enough of that tune. Um, The upshot was that I didn't much listen to Everything Counts, which closes disc B, until I got a CD copy of my own. Again, that was just fine with me. Not one of my favorite tunes, although I know it's a fan favorite. Please don't scream at me too much for saying that. Or what the hell, scream if you want, whatever. But that was a common feature of tape piracy folks, like not hearing the last bits of an album. Uh, this This was very common. It happened to me, I, I remember, with Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine. had the same problem. It cut off midway through Ring Finger, and I didn't hear the end of Ring Finger until probably three years later when I picked it up on CD myself. And, you know, the music industry is as it was and ever will be. They make you buy the same music over and over and over again in different formats, and now they're doing it with digital rights management. Thank you, Apple. Anyway, back to 101. Let's talk about the artwork. So the artwork for 101, I'm pretty sure this is the first time the band worked with Anton Corbin, the great Anton Corbin, uh, the photographer. He's a Dutch photographer. He became famous in the 80s for taking cool looking, and the 70s too, for taking cool looking grainy black and white pictures. Uh, Famous post-punk bands like Joy Division, U2, and then Depeche Mode. Um, I'm sure, I have no doubt, that there are entire smartphone apps out there with filters that emulate his style because it's very distinctive. Um, He would go on to design a lot of the Depeche Mode album in in single sleeves. Uh, I think this might have been the first time that they worked with him, but he would do a lot after this, especially through the big part of their career. He'd direct a bunch of their videos, and he pretty much single-handedly designed the production elements of the 1993 devotional tour, which was probably the biggest tour they ever did. Um, But here he was just getting started with them. Um, The cover is just a shot of the merch booth at the show. (laughs) So if you look carefully at it, you can see that you know, shirts are $23, $10 for a program. You have pins available, $6. Those are 1988 prices, kids. You can expect to pay at least double that at a show these days. Um, let's crack this thing open. Not much going on in the, the sleeve to disc A. There's a, you know, shot of Dave on stage. And you get that same tiny Helvetica type that new order love to use this very clean sort of itty bitty, formal-looking type, and a lot of a lot of negative space to kind of offset that. So that's all right. Um, the back picture is just a picture of a uh, Route 66 road sign. Presumably, you know, this is a hat tip to the fact that the show was recorded in Pasadena, California. Or the fact that the B-side, to Behind the Wheel, was a cover of the old Bobby Troop tune, Get Your Kicks on Route 66. Um, I guess Alan Wilder supposedly came up with the title of 101, and it there were three reasons for that. So for a lot of people, this album would be an introduction of sorts to the band, you know. So it's like Depeche Mode 101. It's the college course. It's an introductory course. The other meaning is that U.S. Route 101 famously extends down the West Coast and is commonly associated with California. And uh, I guess the Pasadena show would be the 101st show of the tour. So pretty apt title. Look at the big brain on Alan. Um, The second disc has a really plain cover. And it has a booklet of photos, photo mode, by Anton Corbin, is what it says. So, take a look at some of these. There's Martin L. Gore on stage. Picture of the Rose Bowl. Picture of some fans. There's Alan and Fletch. Dave and the band. The band is with D.A. Pennebaker, who directed the 101 documentary. Dave's jackets. Here's Martin playing guitar and Fletch pretending to play guitar. Guess that's Dave feeling moody. And Dave apres mode after a show. So there you go. A little bit of Anton Corbin photography in there. So let's just talk about the tracks, run down through them really quick. So we start here. It's a little confusing because they they switch the colors on the back cover, it's just confusing to me. So, disc A starts off with "Pimp," which is this instrumental opener that was almost certainly just a backing track that was playing off a of tape to give the band time to come out. I think that's pretty clear from uh, watching the video. It goes right into Behind the Wheel. Now that's a great opener because it introduces each song element bit by bit and it gradually kind of builds up the tension. The song's kind of very repetitive, but each voice comes in one at a time. So that makes it a good show opener. That goes into Strange Love, and this is a great track that just showcases all of their strengths. It's got solid songwriting, excellent sounds, great production. That leads into Sacred, uh, you know, the classic Martin Elgore song equating religion with sex. Kids love it. It goes into something to do. This is what my friends and I asked ourselves all the time, so we felt very seen listening to this song. Blasphemous Rumors. Uh, It's one of Martin L. Gore's slow-ass ballads. I would usually skip this one, honestly. That leaded, uh, leaded, yeah. Went right into Stripped. Now, that's a pretty intense tune. Um, The ending, if you watch the video, featured... Martin L. Gore hitting some cool plastic panels that were rigged up as MIDI triggers, uh, which caught our imagination somewhat. Like, what else could you do with MIDI? Uh, It was much cooler than just playing the sounds on a keyboard. Um, That led into Somebody. I had a girl once force me to listen to that song, and I suspect she was trying to send me a message. But the message I got was that I appreciated Depeche Mode's faster tracks, and not their schmaltzy ballads. And uh, that rounds out this set with uh, Things You Said, which is some sort of uh, revenge fantasy in slow motion, I guess, sung by Martin L. Gore. Again, I like their faster songs. Maybe it's just me. Disc B starts with Black Celebration, just a classic track. It's their statement on being goth. Gotta love it. Uh, Shake the Disease, okay songs, but nothing One of my favorites, an underrated banger. It's refreshingly nihilistic. I especially like when the extra kick drums come in on the second verse. Uh, Remember, kids, God is saying nothing. That's what Martin Elgore is telling you. Pleasure, Little Treasure, pretty cool dancey tune. Um, I think they must have borrowed Pink Floyd's quadraphonic setup for the intro where they pan the little synth noises all around the stadium using a joystick. That's kind of trippy. Wear headphones and listen to that. Uh, again, People Are People is on here. The music is actually pretty great on that, and maybe even bordering on, like, industrial with the the clangy kind of rhythm tracks. But, man, the lyrics, I agree with, with Martin Elgore. The lyrics kind of don't hold up, at least. That's my opinion, and Martin Elgore's. Question of Time, pretty cool, fast tune, lots of energy. That goes into Never Let Me Down Again. Okay, kids. Never Let Me Down Again. This is in the running for the greatest song ever and the greatest performance ever. I mean, fight me, come on. This song is just a straight-up banger. It's easily my favorite Depeche Mode song by a country mile, and I mean the kind of country mile depicted in the video for Never Let Me Down Again, which was directed by Anton Corbin, by the way. I mean, damn. I mean, this track kills. The performance is nuts. Uh, according to legend, this is the first time Dave got the crowd to wave back and forth, which became a thing with them. And you can you can just watch this happen in real time, watching the 101 video. And my favorite part of that is the, <laughs> the look on Alan Wilder's face when he realizes what's happening. And I think even he was taken aback, you know, like, holy cow, look at that. Anyone would be stunned. I mean, what a moment. Uh, and the song is just epic. Um, I want to make an, uh, an edit of this song that just goes on for about 12 hours. That'd be great. Uh, by the way, fun fact about this track, too. Uh, Depeche Mode obviously sampled the big rock drums. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, they sampled the drums from the opening two bars of Led Zeppelin's When the Levee Breaks. But no, you'd be wrong. They sampled them from the Beastie Boys, "Rhymin' and Stealin, and the Beastie Boys sampled them from Led Zeppelin. So when you're watching this performance or listening to it, you're hearing some second-generation samples of John Bonham banging out that levee beat from Beyond the Grave. I mean, (laughs) yeah, just, like, smoke on that, you know. (sighs) All right, well... Yeah, give me a minute here. i got to gather myself. Yes, okay, I'm good. A <laughs> question of lust. Meh, another slow-ass Martin Elgore vocal that I tend to skip. I mean, man, no wonder that girl refused to date me. Um, Master and Servant. I got pretty sick of this track just from watching 101, where they seem to cut to it over and over and over again. Again, the music is all right in my mind, but the lyrics are just kind of like kind of dated and cringy. Just can't get enough. The oldest song in this set it was written by Vince Clark, uh, who was their original band leader. He left after the first album to form a bunch of other classic bands. Uh, but for fun, just go to the official video for this track and check it out because they're all like 16 in that video. It's just funny to see. Uh, Everything Counts is the last song, and it's a fan favorite, maybe because there's this big sing-along chorus at the end, but it's not really a favorite of mine. Uh, Meh. I I give it a two meh. How about that? So what is that? Four meh songs out of 20, and that's not bad, especially when you consider that this album includes some really great tunes and classic tunes, and let's face it, the greatest tune ever. Never let me down again. Um, So there you have it, the track by track. And I think I say this every episode, but it bears repeating. This is not their best album. I'm not saying it's their best album. It's not even close. It's just where I happened to get on the bus, right? It's the first stuff of theirs I really gave a careful listen to. So it's special to me. And since this is my show, it's what I choose to talk about um it's notable thinking about this album that there are so many great and classic tracks in this show yet it doesn't include violator or <laughs> songs of faith and devotion. Um, it's completely missing Depeche Mode's greatest hits that would come after the recording of this show for the most part um you know they they could have knocked the band on the head after this show and called, The whole thing a massive artistic and commercial success so i mean really like let's think about that for a minute so think about how deep their catalog was at this point they had six studio albums and you know lord knows how many singles and they commanded an audience of that size through a 20 song set and these days you're lucky if a band plays 12 songs unless you know it's like the cure If it's The Cure, they're going to play at least 30 songs. And that's The Cure, folks. They're the best value for your show dollar. But again, they were poised here to scale to the very top. I mean, the very top, like the top of Everest before you had commercial climbing expeditions, a place that many people didn't even dare dream about. Uh, Top of the charts, world famous, dedicated fans for life. And all of the exciting and fun problems of ridiculous excess rock star lifestyles that go with such things. Uh, And they were going to do it all. But here in 101, they're already about as successful as a band from the UK could be in the United States at that time. Maybe with the exception of U2, who were riding pretty high in 1998, we got to admit, with The Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum, And they were about to go through a transformation of their own. Um, But I'd argue that Depeche Mode was about to displace U2 at the top. Maybe a feat that U2 would then repay later with uh, Octung Baby. But that's a different story. So why do I love this album? It's a great snapshot of the band just before they were making it really big. Um, I think it's a better compilation and best of than the bleeps and bloops of, you know, uh, catching up with Depeche Mode and the People Are People compilation albums here in the U.S. Um, Just a better representation of the band. Even Just Can't Get Enough is delivered here in a slightly more ballsy way because, you know, it's live and they're more experienced and it's a big crowd that's really responding. Um, It was my entree into Depeche Mode. Uh, and it probably made me revisit that crappy copy of Violator I got and give it maybe a, a little bit more of a listen. And soon, though, I would take the plunge. Before long, I would be at college scrounging in used record stores for Depeche Mode singles and playing them over and over in the jukebox at Pizza Hut. Uh, where is the band now? Well, Obviously, they went on to conquer the world after this recording and to do what most bands do after they conquer the world. I mean, you know, what did Pink Floyd do after Dark Side of the Moon? You know, exactly. They released steadily worse albums and they lost some members and carried on for decades as a pale imitation of their former glorious selves and crapped all over their legacy and forced us to remember them as being middle-aged and old rather than you know young as they were uh, yeah so I'm sort of kind of joking but seriously I haven't listened to Depeche Mode much after they did Ultra but I'll give you the thumbnail of what happened uh, after this record in 1988 uh, they ended up releasing their greatest album in my opinion Violator with its four chart-topping singles they released their second greatest album, Songs of Faith and Devotion, with several more chart-topping singles. They would famously embark on the devotional tour for about two years, the stresses and excesses of which would finally break the band. Uh, Alan Wilder would split, leaving the band without their built-in producer, the guy who largely shaped their sound with the help of Flood, who we talked about in the Nights Are Reb episode. Uh, Dave Gon would famously battle a strong heroin addiction. Is there any other kind of heroin addiction? Probably not. He would barely scrape through, and they would release their comeback album Ultra in 1997. In my humble opinion, that album had just one or two tunes that lived up to their previous work. I could sense a shift there away from melody and atmospherics, the kind of stuff that Alan Wilder brought to the to the mix in favor of just you know more generic dance beats and I didn't dig that transformation so other than a few singles here and there I really haven't heard much of their later work kind of am not keeping up with the push mode but as far as where they were with 101 the best was yet to come Uh, I'll definitely speak of their other albums in the future but until then I'm just going to stick at a pin in it here and there you have it kids one of the elephants in the room the mighty Depeche Mode that's all I've got for you today if you dug this stick around Uh, I have a huge music collection and some time in my hands and I'm going to go through this stuff plenty more old ass 80s and 90s albums to consider Stronger Than Reason is available on YouTube and as a podcast wherever you do your podcast thing and if you like what you heard Please do what the kids say, like, and subscribe. I am just one dude with an opinion. Consider leaving yours as a comment or make your own show. Let's all make our own shows. But until next time, stay strong.